this message is about reaching generations. And, um, you know, one of the big things for me is faith. I love to talk about faith. And it's part of the big three, faith, hope, and love. I know the greatest is love. And love always has to be the heart motivation. I understand that. Without that heart motivation, perfect love, then you're not going to step into actual God faith. I understand that. But without faith, it's impossible to please God. And faith is, I mean, it's, it's the big three, faith, hope, and love. And so much happens as a result of faith. And I, when, I, when I read the word and I see how Jesus approached faith, he's always talking about your lack of faith, you know. Where's your faith? Da, da, da. And he's always pressuring the faith of the disciples so that they grow in faith. And uh, even Luke 18, 8 says, uh, when the Son of Man's, will he find persistent faith on the earth? Faith is such a huge thing. And uh, it seems the more that we embrace the mind of Christ, Scripture says we have the mind of Christ, the more we embrace what we already have in the Spirit, which is the mind of Christ, by the Holy Spirit, the more we take on God's heart. The more we take on God's heart, the more we take on genuine faith. And when we take on God-like faith, it's an enduring faith. It's a faith that lasts and a faith that impacts generations, not just ourselves. I want to talk about that multi-generational faith, because that, to me, is the purest form of faith. The more we own the heart of God, the more our life isn't about ourselves, but it's about Him and it's about others. I just believe the more we tap into God's heart, we make that shift in ourselves. I'm always trying to do this in the in the natural with my family, with my kids, and um, you know I tell them, look, we're saving for your grandkids right now, and they started a few years ago doing the exact same thing. Every time they make money, I've got we've got a. 11-year-old boy and a 10-year-old girl. They just had birthdays. And uh, they actually save money for their grandkids. Whenever they make allowance, say, well, are you going to... And I never force, we never force them to do this. I say, well, what do you want to do with this money? Okay, we're going to give some to the JPL. We're going to tithe, okay. And then what about the poor? You want to give some to the poor? Yeah, we'll give to the poor. Okay, let's set some aside for the poor. And then what about your grandkids? You want to do that? Yeah, let's do that. Okay. And they always set it aside, so they're always thinking... You know, first the natural and then the spiritual, but it gets them thinking along those lines. It's like, you don't have to, I tell my kids, I say, you don't have to save for your kids because those are my grandkids, we're our grandkids, and I'm saving for them, we're saving for them, so therefore we've got them covered, you don't have to worry about them. Your life is to be about dedicating to the Lord and thinking, paying it forward to the future generations. That's why the, you guys are saving for your grandkids. And, you know, they've been doing that, and it's been, it's been awesome. And uh, my, my, our son had a little bit of a slip there. He's saving for a remote control car that he loves. Okay, and uh, he said, Dad, you know how we always set aside all that money for all this? He says, I, you know, I, I really want to get this car quickly. What do you say we just, you know, and I just put it all toward that. I said, son, you know, you do, what you're telling me is, let me, let, me, let me hear you right here. So you're saying that you just kind of want to live and work for yourself now and really not the poor or your grandkids? Is that what, you, is that what you're trying to tell me? Um, 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 second thought, Dad, no, let's just keep doing what we're doing. <laughs> it was good. It was good. But we never forced him. We said, do you want to do this? Yes. Okay, good. You don't want to rob God. I was like, you really want to do that, son? No. Uh, Proverbs 13.22 says... Uh, a righteous man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. This is just something in the natural that we do. 
just to represent what is going on in the spiritual, thinking forward, thinking ahead in the generations to come. We see this in the New Testament in 2 Timothy. I love this passage. If you want to turn, you can. 2 Timothy 1, 3 through 7. You know, Paul's telling Timothy, I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience as my forefathers did. Without ceasing, I remember you in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears that I may be filled with joy when I call to remembrance, call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, Timothy, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded is also in you. Therefore, I remind you, therefore, as a result of this faith for the generations, I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. Paul is reminding Timothy of this, and that word there, remind you, is a Greek word, amonesco, it means to remind, to recollect, to call to mind. It's like you've got to remember, remember what the Lord's done for you. Remember what your grandmother has done and the faith that she had and your mother, and I believe that's in you, and stir that up, remember it, call to light, have a testimony of what the Lord has done in your life and in your heart over all these years. It's so good to do this. And even if you're first generation, it doesn't matter. You start now. And even if you don't have any um, physical, biological children, God's got, it's, it's just, this is a spiritual issue. You have spiritual children, and God has a plan and a purpose for our lives to sow and to give into the next generations to come. My wife and I, every year we ask on the children's birthdays, uh, we ask the Lord to give us a prophetic word for them. And we write it down on their birthday separately. And we compare, we're like, oh, what'd God give you for Nick? Or what'd God give you, you know, for Elena? And every, and every year we read it out to them. And that's their word for the year. And we put it up in their rooms as a reminder. Never forget, this is what God wants to do in your life this year. This is God's purpose for you this year. If your parents, you know, ask God to give you something for your kids. And just think about it. When our kids are 20, 25, 30, or whatever, they can look back and see these prophetic words they received every year. And if you're a grandparent, you can start doing this for your grandkids. Just every year, just ask them, what, God, what do you want to touch, you know, little Billy Bob with? Or, you know, what do you, what's your word for them? Sorry, I got back from Kentucky a while ago. So. Jim Bob was this good pastor's son's. Jim Bob? I think it was Jim Bob. We said, of course, his name's Jim Bob. We're in Kentucky. Um, but we call to mind these things. And it's so important for us to have that history in the Lord. This is the, problem, this is the issue with the parable of the sower, that some falls on, on uh, shallow ground, it's scorched. And the ones that have deep roots are the ones that have a history in the Lord, that recall, they remember. It. So that's why Paul's saying, remember this. I'm going to ask, remember what the Lord has done. Recall, remember, so it doesn't get stolen from you because the devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and we hate it when that happens. I hate that nothing more than seeing God move on a person and the devil stealing that seed. I just, oh boy, that's just a tough one to take. But we have to fight these things. We have to fight the fight of faith. And I don't know anybody that did that better than Abraham, and I'd love to look at the life of Abraham because there's no one that I see more in the Bible that affecting generations than, um, than Abraham. And I want to look at some passages here in uh, Genesis. Again, you don't have to 
turn if you do not wish. We might have it on the, the thing behind me. All right. You guys are awesome back there. Keep it up. Um, but anyways, breakthrough in your life. My, my wife and I remember when we first moved to Baton Rouge, we had absolutely no money. We found an apartment that said, first month's rent free. Like, all right, that's our place, God. Thank you. Because <laughs> we didn't have any money. And uh, we were supposed to have a small group in our church, but we had no couch and no money for a couch. So we were just praying, praying, believing God for a couch. One day we get a knock on the door. I open the door. There's this guy standing out there. We've got a couch. Do you want it? I mean, that's just God. That's just amazing. I'm like, that's for us. Praise God. Bring it in. You know, and we brought this couch in, and we had our small group on this couch. You know, people would sit on it. It was a pretty good-sized couch. And Jan and I remember that couch. Mom, did you stay on that couch? Do you remember that couch? I thought you did. I remember what that couch looked like, what it smelled like. Kind of like an ashtray, but it was good. I mean, it... it <laughs> Served us so well over those years. I'll never forget that couch. No, you know, if we ever hit a financial issue again, we just, hey, this is the no-brainer. We've got this one. God's already proved himself faithful in this area. We've already had a history and a testimony of this because of the couch. So we'll never forget the couch. If he's faithful there, he'll be faithful everywhere. If you don't have a testimony, find somebody else's and use it or find somebody's in the Word and use it. Okay, because he is good, he is faithful and true, and he always comes through. Well, faith is just about believing God, believing he is who he says he is. That's what faith is. He is who he says he is. Uh, but he proved his faithfulness. But the demands of faith escalate over time. You know, I think provision is just a real basic one. And, I mean, that's like the first step, like the couch or finances for your life. And then it gets... Um, it escalates from there into bigger things. You believe me for this and I, how I provided for you, but now how about this? How about this next step? Are you going to be with me on this one? There'll be a demand and pressure put on your faith in God. You know, it's just recently I've been beginning to ask the Lord for multi-generational faith because I saw it so clearly in Abraham. And I know this is uh, God's heart. Abraham's faith is multi-dimensional. I love the way that the father is so patient with Abraham. He doesn't rush this faith. He doesn't hurry it. He does not f force it too much on Abraham. He just gives him what he can handle. But you know, he said, look, Abraham, look to the north, south, east, and west. Look, all this, as far as you can see, I'm giving you this land. And your descendants are going to be like the sand, as numerous as the dust of the earth. Like, not even countable. There's going to be so many. And, you know, Abraham doesn't even have a kid at this point. He's old. Sarah's getting up there in age. That's a tough word. That's going to stretch you a lot. God had already, he'd already been through the provision. God had, he already had flocks and herds. He was already really good in that department. This is a step beyond. And I want to take you to Genesis 18, 16. What the Lord does here. I love this. The Lord is attempting to develop stronger faith in Abraham. And this is a situation he had already met with uh, Melchizedek and given him a tenth. And then the Lord says, should we hide from Abraham what we're, what we're going to do? I, I love this passage. You know, should we tell him? What do you think? God's, God, you know, the Lord's having a discussion with his heavenly host, I guess. 
What do you think? Should we tell Abraham what we're about? I don't know if we should tell him. Should we tell him? I don't know. Maybe we should tell him. He's not going to be able to handle it. I know, I know. But maybe we should tell him anyways. But why do they end up telling him what they're about to do in Sodom? He says, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm doing, since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation? And all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him. One translation said, for I have loved him. In order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they may keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice. This is the only reason he's telling Abraham this. For the sake of the generations, for I have known him. He's telling Abraham because he says, because I have known him. And I looked up this word known. It's a Hebrew word, yada. That means to know in a deeply intimate way. And I did a word study on yada. And it says, you can take it all the way back to the beginning of Genesis. And it says, it says Adam knew Eve and she conceived. And that word for knew is the same word, yada. As God is telling Abraham, for I know, I'm going to tell him because I yada him. Because I know him intimately. I'm going to reveal this to him, what I'm about to do. You get this? Adam yadded Eve, she conceived. God is now yadding, yada, knowing Abraham. And something is conceived. He's willing to tell Abraham to conceive something great in Abraham. As we go on, for I have known him and his children. This is all about generational faith. Now, Abraham. As we know his reaction, I want to get to that part here. Abraham says, this is, you know, where they get in this whole thing. Well, you know, what about for 50, da-da-da-da-da? Will you spare the city for 40, da-da-da-da-da? But this is what Abraham, let's look at his reaction to God. Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. That's getting pretty, like, like, in God's face, don't you think? Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? This is the father of faith, right? Abraham. And he's questioning God to such an extent he's actually accusing him. As if, as if he has more compassion than God. And God knows that Abraham's going to throw a hissy fit over this whole thing. But he still tells him anyways. And God is so gentle with him. He doesn't say, how dare you question me? I'm God. You know, and he doesn't say, Abraham, I know something that you don't. So let's just zip it right here. He doesn't do that. He actually engages and he has a, this conversation with Abraham, even though he's going to do what he's going to do and nothing's going to stop it. God had already made up his mind, and God had already done his due diligence on Sodom and Gomorrah. He already knew what he was going to do. He already knew it was a perverse, wicked city full of sexual sin, and he was going to wipe them out. It was a done deal. He already knew there wasn't ten righteous people in the, in the city. But Abraham didn't know that, so he's arguing with, with God and everything. But it shows you where Abraham is in his journey of faith. He's not trusting God. If he had trusted, really trusted God, God said, this is what I'm going to do. We said, wow, God. I know you're so merciful. I know you're so full of compassion. I know you're so full of grace. It must be really bad, God, what's going on there. And that would have been the end of it, instead of him fighting and arguing with God. 
All of this is setting Abraham up to pass the big test. This is not the big test. The big test comes later when Abraham is going to say, take what you value most of all in your life more than anything else and kill that thing. How is Abraham going to react in that moment? He's not ready at this point. There's a reason Isaac has not been born yet. If Isaac is born now and God tells him to do this, Abraham is not going to pass the test. So Abraham brings him on what he's going to do just so he can demonstrate how good he is. There's a real honor and respect for God that emerges after what happens at Sodom. Sodom gets completely wiped out. Abraham realizes he was totally wrong to question God and do all that. The outcome was the same, but he realizes how good God is and how true he is and how just he is after this whole situation occurs. And it changes Abraham's perspective. And even though Abraham fails the test, out of intimacy with God, because God is yachting with him, he's knowing him in such an intimate way, he's sharing details of who he is with him, he's growing in relationship to God and growing in faith. It's out of presence in relationship. So even if we fail a test, see, I don't believe that we get stuck in a loop when we fail a test in God. This passage should prove that. No, I blew it, God. Okay, now you're going to be stuck for 10 years of doing this as punishment for not passing that test. Now you're not going to come into your destiny. God's not like that. He's so good. Because when you know him intimately, it changes everything out of presence. I just want you to see that it's out of presence, God's presence. This is why it says, like, this passage in um, Matthew, it's all about knowing him. Jesus says to his disciples, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So I looked up that word, I never knew you, and that's the uh, Greek word, ginosko, and it has the same meaning, pretty much, as the Hebrew, yada. Jesus is saying, he said, we never, there was never any yada. You worked miracles, you did some of this stuff, but I never knew you. You didn't know me in such an intimate way that something of me could be birthed in you to affect you your descendants, and future generations. There was nothing to build on there. You did a few good things, but there was nothing of me in it. You didn't know me in such a way that generations could be impacted, that your life could be transformed, that you could think like I think, that you could think with my heart. I want to look at another gentleman in the Bible. Speaking of uh, making mistakes, let's look at Hezekiah, 2 Kings. This guy, Hezekiah, has an interesting life. He did some really good things in his life. When he first came, took over, he kind of smashed some idols, removed some high places, did some really good things. He was going gung-ho for God, going well. Then he ends up getting a sickness and... He sends Isaiah to tell Hezekiah, you're going to die. Just get your, get your house in order because you're about to die. And some of you may know this story. Hezekiah gets on his knees, pleads to God, you know, God, help me, mercy. And before Isaiah is even out the door, he says, go back, 
tell him he's going to live, I'm going to heal him, and you're going to get 15 years more life. So Hezekiah gets healed. And then it's a miracle. So other, because the nations around him, they know that Hezekiah is dying. They know that God has worked a great miracle. But when they come to visit Hezekiah, instead of Hezekiah talking about God and the miracle, he goes and shows him all the treasures of the palace and all this stuff. He's kind of like showing off instead of giving God the glory for what has taken place. It's not a very good moment for him. And uh, he gets this word then from Isaiah that comes up. And it shows you where the heart of Hezekiah is. It says, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. So I want you to picture this. He says, what your fathers have accumulated in this day. In other words, for his treasury, that stuff that he showed those foreign kings when they showed. All this stuff that is in your house, you didn't work for it. It was from future generations. Their faith has built. My faith in them has built what, is, what you have now. And now that's about to be carried away. What are you going to do to not only keep what has been given to you from the other generations, but actually multiply it and expand it? What are you going to do, Hezekiah? What are you going to do? Because I'm telling you now that all this stuff, their faith has led to this moment. Now it's on your faith. Now it's up to you. Their faith has gotten you this far. Those treasuries in there from their faith, not from your faith. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. For he said, will there not be peace and truth at least in my days? Picture this. All this stuff from their forefathers' faith is accumulated there. In that moment, God says, I'm taking it all away. And not only that, I'm taking away your sons and they're going to be carried off. And he says, that word's good. Will at least not be peace in my day. See, he had a single generation mentality. He was living for himself in his days. He did not care about his descendants. He did not care about his children, obviously, or his grandchildren. You know, if someone says that your kids are going to be eunuchs and some other and hauled away and you say it's good, your part is probably not in a real good place. He did not have the heart of God. If he had the heart of God, he would never say that. He would never take that approach. He would never have that stance. He would never have that attitude that he had. It shows you where his heart was. It's so sad to think that it actually would have been better for this man to have died 15 years earlier and not have those extra 15 years because nothing good came out of those extra 15 years he had. The shortcomings of his life and his lack of intimacy and being close to God were amplified in those 15 years to such an extent that God has to declare this over him. And the guy that becomes king after him is his 12-year-old son, Manasseh, who's one of the worst wicked kings in Israel. And he proceeds to do absolutely everything that Hezekiah did in his lifetime. Hezekiah smashed some altars and all that. His son, Manasseh, rebuilds them all. The idolatry gets worse in Israel than it ever is because of his son, who's 12, by the way. And Hezekiah is supposed to die 15 years earlier did not sow at all into his generations, into his children. As a result, there's absolute disaster. 
comes upon him because he didn't yada with God. He did some good works, but he didn't know God in such an intimate way that he took on the heart of God and thought forward, thought ahead, and lived for other people. Abraham, five things Abraham did that centered his faith that impacted every generation. Genesis 26 says, I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham, here's five things, he obeyed my voice, he kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. He lived out of the voice of God through intimacy because of yada. Jesus' disciples, it's all because of presence when they yada. See, Jesus' disciples, they spent so much time with Jesus, and they were so intimate that they were able to handle some of the tests that came along. When Jesus preached his message, or preached that message in John 6 about eat my flesh, drink my blood, just about everybody bailed on Jesus except for the disciples. The only reason they stayed was out of intimacy and knowing Jesus. He says, where are you going to go? He says, I don't know, God. I don't understand anything you're saying, Jesus, but you have all the answers of eternal life, so we're going to stick with you. And most of the disciples left at John 6. God had prepared them. The presence makes up for so much is what I'm trying to say to you. It, it, our margin of error is uh, much greater with his presence. There's so much grace and mercy in his presence. It makes up for so much. Just like Abraham, he can make a big mistake. He can question God. He can think that God is unjust. And God is about to do something foolish. And it doesn't even matter because God's with him. And he's close to him. And he's intimate with him. It's all because of the presence. It's out of presence that, this, that Abraham is able to do what he does. Their disciples were a work in progress. We know that for sure. And they grew in their faith and trust in believing Jesus is who he says he is. All of, everything in Abraham's life for me comes down to the big test in Genesis 22. And Hebrew scholars will say there's ten tests of, of uh, Abraham. But I, you know, there was actually obviously more than that, but they highlight the ten trials of Abraham. But this is always the final one. It's like, this is the one that releases everything. It's okay to fail and question God along the way. It was for Abraham because he knew him and was close to him, and God humbled him through that experience. Abraham actually levels up in faith as a result of failing a test. Imagine failing a test and growing closer to God and leveling up in faith. Isn't that cool? That's our God. That's how much he loves us. That's what he does for us. He's always with us. He never forsakes us. We're in good hands. Very good hands. The accumulation of everything. Now it came to pass in Genesis 22, after these things that God tested Abraham, and said to him, Abraham, I love this, Abraham. And Abraham says, here I am, here I am. It's almost like he's ready for this, this time. Before, it's like, should we tell him? I don't know. Should we tell, should we tell Abraham what we're going to do? Okay, let's tell him. I know he's going to throw a hissy fit, but look, you know, we've got to get on with this thing. This guy's got to grow. So this time it's here I am. And then he says, and I love how the God just, he, he doesn't say, you know, just, just take your son and sacrifice. He kind of rubs in the depth of what he's asking Abraham to do here. 
He says, listen to what God says. Take now your son, your only son, Isaac. You know, Abraham only had one son. Ishmael is not a son. He's offspring, but he's not a son. There's a big difference. That's a whole other message. Okay. Take your son, your only son. God says he's his only son. Whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And there's no, listen to the, so Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey. There's no questioning of God. He's, God has developed him so much and been so close to him all these years. God has prepared him to pass the big test. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes to the place far off, and Abraham said to the young man, Stay here, we'll saddle the donkey, and we'll go yonder. So you know the story. Abraham and Isaac, they take the wood. Isaac asks him, Where's the sacrifice? And you know what Abraham says. My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for burnt offering. So the two went. Isaac let himself be bound at, at this point. Isaac knows exactly what's happening here, by the way. It's a father being willing to lay down the life of his son. There's nothing, I don't believe there's anyone more like the God and Jesus than the story of Abraham and Isaac. It's a son willing to go and be sacrificed out of the voice of God, being obedient. So Abraham stretched out his hand to take the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, here I am, just like before. He said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. And this is the part that always gets me. For now I know. Now. Now that you've done this, now that you've been willing to slay your son, now I know that you fear God. Now I know. Since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then we know the story. It was a, caught in the thicket, the ram. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time. He says, by myself I have sworn, this is in verse 16, says the Lord, because you've done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, because of this, because of what you've done, because of this moment and this act, which I've been preparing you for your whole life, because of this, blessing I will bless you and multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven. Do you see how this act released the promise of God to be fulfilled. And as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Because you have obeyed my voice. He says, Now I know, God says, and that word no is the same word, yada. Yada. He yadded with, he, it says he knew Abraham back at Sodom when he shared with him what he was about to do, destroy the city. Abraham wasn't ready then to yada with God, even though God was yada knowing him. Now it says, now I know that you yada me. Now I know that it's been reciprocated all these years I've been developing it so that you would know me as I've been knowing you all these years. And as a result now of you knowing me in this way, now 
the promises and everything I've spoken to you can be fulfilled in your life because you've passed this test, because you've been intimate with me. He didn't even complain. He didn't even question God at all in the end because he'd been tested and tried and was faithful. When we yada with God, what could be birthed? What can God birth in us to a heart that's surrendered to him, to have the mind of Christ? Generations were blessed because of the faith of one man. We are blessed because of Abraham passing this test. We are the sons of faith. All this because of what this man did and went through. And God took his time. He pressurized Abraham, like he tenderized him like a, like a piece of tough, tough meat that has to be stewed over a long period of time. That's what God did with the life of Abraham. He didn't sear him and put him on high heat. He worked so gently and intimately with him to get him to this place where he would pass the ultimate test and release the blessing that would affect generation after generation after generation and prepare the way of the Lord. It doesn't come cheap, this multi-generational faith, this enduring faith. This is the stuff, this is what we live for, to know God in this way. And you have to ask God for it, I believe. And you have to stay the course of it. And things won't always look good, as they did in the life of Abraham. But it's out of intimacy, God will get you through every test, whether you pass it or not. He will advance you time and time again. Um, but it's important to get God's heart, not just have faith for your life, but have faith for the generations that will come after you. Even if you don't have natural-born children, God will give you spiritual children. God will give you something, someone, something to be birthed that is of him in your life that will last and last and last.